Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. I look forward to having your company here on 3 Triple R102.7 on this fabulous. I think this is the first um, summer Sunday morning. So Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Feels like it anyway. It doesn't, doesn't it? It? Sunshine, Sunshine abounds. It does <laughs> indeed. So misdiagnosis has taken her mask and her vaccine certificate and meandered off to New South Wales. But I'm very fortunate to have here in the studio the regular panellist, Panel Peter and Prudence Dear, Welcome to both of you. Good morning. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> morning, Prudence. Morning, Dr Nick. And uh, uh, this is the last Dr Nick show for 2021, so oh. we're going to go out with a bang. Let's try. Here we've got a couple of fabulous guests coming up. After news, we will be talking with Victoria Bridgeland about a topic we've covered more than once before on radiotherapy, trigger warnings. We've all read them, heard them, we might even have written them. But are they fit for purpose? If, like me, you're a sceptic, <laughs> you won't want to miss this one. And Prudence, dear, you've got an equally amazing guest coming up. I reckon, yeah. I think we could have a bit of fun there. And talking of trigger warning, well, trigger warning, sex education. There you go. Have you, have you seen the programme, Sex Education, that really popular UK-based... Panel beaters nodding. Yeah, you love it, don't you? I love Gillian Anderson. It's, it deals with that subject matter so well. Doesn't it? It really it It's really refreshing brings, that it can be dealt with the way it's done. It brings it home, doesn't it? Well, well one of we've my, got uh, a guest coming up. So, well, Not Gillian Anderson. So I, I have seen it, and my excuse for seeing it is that during lockdown, I bought a rowing machine, and my only incentive oh. for getting on the rowing machine was <laughs> to fire that. up Netflix and watch whatever was going on. Fantastic. So I read, uh, watched all three seasons well, of Sex Education, and I have some strong opinions. Good, and I would like to uh, invite some of those opinions. But yes, um, research, let's get serious. Yeah, There's been a bit of research going on, and our guest later today is uh, Giselle Woodley, who's a PhD candidate. And amongst other things, uh, they've been, she's been looking at uh, sex education, both what we teach in schools, but also the TV programme. And actually kind of doing, there's a, a research paper that's been published, which has really used that TV programme as a basis for perhaps getting a better understanding Ooh. of what adolescents really need in terms of sex education. So we'll dive into that a little bit later. Fantastic. We've got Giselle coming up um, in the second half of the show. But before that, we've got a new segment. <laughs> now, Sounds like a Labrador to me. <laughs> oh, yes, it's the dog park shout-out. Uh, here at Triple R, we love all animals, cats, dogs, aardvarks, or axolotls. Actually, someone at my workplace has got an axolotl, and... The axolotl's name is Jerome. Of course it is. Well, what else would it be? <laughs> Isn't that just the best name for an axolotl? But today it's um, we're doing dogs um, because we just love dogs. And I've got dogs. And um, uh, my shout out today goes to the lovely Nicole from Richmond, who I met yesterday with her absolutely adorable six-month-old border collie, Ash. And Ash is a merle. 
It's not a, a merle. It? A merle. A merle. It's that wonderful name for the border collies that have this more than one colour in them. Oh, and Ash was named by her children because Ash has got this sort of rather grey, sooty look and looks like the ashes in the fireplace. So Wonderful. <laughs> Shout out to it. Ash and Nicole from Richmond. Who have you got for us? Well, Can I haven't really got anyone specific today, but I've kind of moved. So, And I haven't been going to the dog park, but I've now taken up uh, regular walks around Dalesford Lake. Can you explain to me what kind of moved? I've moved from the city <laughs> to, to the country. So it's, an I actu- live- it's an actual move. I have moved. I have moved house from from here to uh, you know, a couple of hundred kilometres out, um, out west. And I'm not too far from Dalesford. And I love walking around that lake in the mornings. And it is, there are oodles of oodles there. So I have a, a little cavoodle. And we meet regularly various people along the way and various dogs along the way. So I'd just be really interested if you see me with my little cavoodle, come and say hello. And we'll see uh, just how far radiotherapy gets. So to all the dog lovers of Dalesford, keep an eye out for Prudence Deer and the Cavoodle wandering around the parks there. You might get a shout-out on radiotherapy. Oh, that's all wonderful. So next we are going to have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I'll give you one little news item because I love these sort of um, iconoclastic kind of bits of research. And it was in the paper this week. You may have seen this uh, 10,000 steps, which seems to be a religion for some. And so these researchers had a look and said, no, 7,500 is enough. <laughs> it it, it remo- reminds me of that. I uh, remember a few years ago the, there was a claim that you, if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you'll yeah. become an expert. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Which is just terrifying why I'm not an expert in so many different things. <laughs> but, but this 10,000 steps, uh, where did it come from in the first place? Turns out the 10,000 just came from a Korean name for an original pedometer. Uh, and the name in Korean was 10,000 <laughs> because it just kind of sounded cute and a, a reasonable goal. Um, but what these researchers did, and they, and they did what's called a meta-analysis. They went back over a stack of other research papers. And what they found is that there was huge benefit to be had in terms of um, mortality. I mean, that was the end point, whether or not you drop dead. Much less likely to if you walk. So people who don't walk, um, higher risk. People who walk do better. Um, and there's a very uh, marked improvement all the way down to 7,500 steps, dropping mortality risk by about 40%, wow. which is incredible. But after you get past 7,500, there was still benefit. It was just less. So it's not that you shouldn't do 10,000. Yeah. But because that's sometimes a bit of because that's nearly six, seven kilometres, um, which is a bit much for some people. Um, so folks out there, if you don't manage the 10,000, don't despair. 7,500 is doing you most of the good. Any extra about that is just a little top up to the yeah. system. Icing on the cake. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, That's like, get, you know, the old, uh, I mean, just throwing in the little tidbits there, the, it's like getting off one bus stop earlier or one train station earlier and, and walking the rest of the way to work, isn't it? And really good point, Panel Beater, because what the 10,000 or 7,500, whichever you choose, you don't have to do it in sort of a big lot and stride out and do something very worthy. It's about accumulating these mm. steps. Mm. Um, just for people listening who are interested, there is evidence that pushy 
sweating it a bit, uh, getting the heart rate up, getting a bit hot and sweaty and so on, probably helps a bit extra. So strolling the entire time, probably not as good as uh, stepping out. Um, people who've heard the show before may remember our interview with Helen Zerka, uh, the wonderful neurologist who published the book, um, The Secret Secrets to Women's Healthy Aging, um, which I've probably sold more copies of than, than her publishers have. Become. <laughs> I've been recommending it to all my patients. Um, but her research showed that the women who walked on a regular basis did better. And here we are, 7,500 steps, probably good enough for you. Panel Beater, did you have a quick one for us as well? Yeah, really quick. And it's more of a question than um, a, a, a take a look at a particular news item. There's been a, um, a flurry of uh, news reports around um, uh, medical malpractice, even, um, even uh, research practice. So it's a really a question to you, Dr. Nick, maybe give us some insight about what happens in scenarios like this, where there's a claim, the most recent one, the one most people would have heard of would be the cosmetic surgeon that's under investigation at the moment, it was a Four Corners report. What happens in scenarios like this from the oversight boards? Yeah, so the, um, the Australian Health Practitioners Registration Agency, APRA, um, is the national oversight. Um, and when people are not happy, someone has to make a complaint. I mean, APRA can initiate it themselves if they read about things or hear about things. So there might be a, a court case, for instance, where someone from APRA says, oh, I'm concerned because that doctor's been in court for doing something inappropriate. Um, often it comes from individual complaints. So someone goes to um, maybe the health practitioner services uh, person and says, I'm not happy with what's happening, gets passed on to APRA, and if they're concerned enough, they investigate. Um, it's a very, uh, and I have been involved in this <coughs> in the past, um, completely exonerated, I hasten to add, um, but uh, it is an interesting process. Uh, it, it takes 12, 18 months, and for the practitioners involved, particularly if you haven't done anything wrong, um, you're sitting around for a very long time being investigated without hearing anything, so it's a stressful, difficult process. It's not quick, it's not efficient, um, and I think most of us feel there's a lot that could be done to improve it. What are, what are the two or three, four or five, whatever the number is, uh, Dr. Nick, um, other types of outcomes that can follow an investigation? Yeah, a great question. So it can range from um, absolutely no sanction of any kind. I've found that the practitioner didn't do anything wrong. Uh, could be that someone made a bit of a mistake. They didn't do anything disastrous. Uh, what's called a caution, which doesn't even go on the person's reprimand uh, record <laughs> because reprimand is the next one. Um, and then there are sanctions above that, um, which may put limitations on practice, may require someone to undergo some training, <clears throat> or at the more extreme end, then uh, a spell away from practice, um, not necessarily being struck off permanently, but suspended from practice for a certain length of time, and coming back with certain conditions on their registration. So there are a whole raft of possible conditions. And if anyone's concerned about their doctor, they can go onto APRA's website and they can look them up um, because it's all there um, for the public to see. It's, it's like all these things. It's quite hard to navigate your way through. Um, but, um, yeah, it's there if you want to see it. Um, um, now, <laughs> um, thank you for that panel, Peter. Now, the, I, I now have warning for listeners. Pay attention. The next guest is High Risk. She will delight, she will engage, and she might also challenge you. She will possibly even make you rethink some long-held beliefs. You have been warned. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. 
if anyone's still listening after my warning, you might have all turned off because you're all terrified what's going to happen next. Hopefully on the line, we've got Victoria Bridgeland. Are you there, Victoria? I am, yeah. I'm here. <laughs> In sunny South Australia. Yes. Wait, what's it's the... been pretty sunny at the moment. <laughs> and what is the time over there, just so we know? Um, it's about 9.50, I think. Yeah, okay, 9.50 so just, yeah. just half an hour behind. Well, thank you very much for yeah. getting up extra early on your Sunday morning to talk yeah. to us. Um, <laughs> no worries at all. Thanks so much for having me on. So, um, I heard you talking about this on Radio National. I thought, oh, I have to have this woman on the show because I was fascinated um, by what you've discovered. So let's, let's go right back to the start. So trigger warnings is what we're talking about. Most people listening will be familiar with what that means, but we better just explain in case anyone's unclear. What actually are we talking about when it comes to a trigger warning? Um, so trigger warnings are an alert that um, upcoming content may contain um, either something distressing or maybe something related to a traumatic experience. Um, and so there were originally um, the roots for a trigger warning um, is sort of in the clinical or um, I guess psychological roots um, and it's to yeah for, forewarn about um, distressing material um, and yeah primary as I said primarily for people with um, PTSD um, that was the original kind of um, aim but yeah they've since expanded out um, as you would have heard or seen around the place and now um, you see them on a lot of distressing um, pretty much anything distressing um, you'll get a trigger warning along alongside that. Victoria, this is a fabulous topic. Um, just while we're on the definitions, can you may- maybe make a contrast with what you've just told us and what we may more generically understand are content warnings, things like PG ratings, M ratings, and, and so forth on-, on films, for example? Yeah, so, um, so those ratings have been around for quite a long time, I think since 1968 when um, the Hayes Code was abolished um, and they, instead of having the, uh, this morality code that that sort of controlled what we saw on television, um, they had warnings. So, in a sense, giving people control over what they saw. Um, but those kind of warnings, um, obviously, we have them on everything still. But alongside those, people are now calling for trigger warnings to be added in addition. And the reason why is because trigger warnings sort of take it a step further. So, rather than just telling you about, say, the content of, of what might be in in some in a show or whatever, um, it actually uh, takes it further and tells you about the kind of reactions that you may experience, or tells you about maybe um, if you have a certain experience, say a traumatic experience or a certain kind of mental illness that you may not want to um, engage in the show. So it sort of takes it a step further with a bit more emotive language, tells you you might be distressed, um, yeah, and sometimes also talks about um, specifically sort of clinical disorders that um, if you have those kind of uh, what we what I sort of call a mental health vulnerability, um, that, yeah, you might want to avoid it. Um, and so I know that on Netflix at the moment there's a petition to mandate trigger warnings on top of all those film warnings. So, yeah, they're just taking it sort of a step further. So our listeners will have bumped into this concept of trigger warnings and the discussions surrounding them in a number of different ways. Some people have bumped into them, you know, with the thematic being something to do with our our um, our wish to demonstrate social care for those amongst us who have experienced trauma and so on. Others will bump into it from a psychological point of view. Others, and I count my, myself among them from a pedagogical point of view, dealing with it in the university context, um, and, and so on and so forth. It's notable, therefore, that you've published your research in memory. Now, what, what's the link between memory and trauma that you're making? Um, so... I think about, um, I come from a trauma memory lab, um, and I think about trauma as a disorder of memory. So um, you can't have a traumatic experience without having a memory about it. Um, And that's often where it goes wrong. So we'd say with PTSD, so someone could have, two people in the population could have the exact same traumatic experience. So the experience, the actual event is the same. 
But one person may go on to develop PTSD and one person may not. And that's where the memory comes in. So it's how that memory has been processed in that person's mind that then leads someone potentially to to develop PTSD. And so that's where the trigger warning link comes in. So the the term trigger in trigger warning comes from that idea that someone who's experienced a traumatic event, if they come across um, some sort of stimuli or something that's related to that event in everyday life, so say someone who's had a car crash, um, they see something uh, flashing in their eyes like a light, they could then be triggered to re-experience emotional responses to that traumatic memory. So essentially that memory is coming back in their mind. Um, So that's the sort of trauma memory link there. Um, And then where the origins of trigger warnings come from. So the idea of a trigger warning is you get warned about this. So then you could potentially either mentally prepare yourself so you don't have that triggering reaction or you could avoid the content which are the kind of claims that I've been testing in my research. Yes, talk, let's talk about... The, oh, let's, uh, yeah, sorry, Prudence, Prudence, go ahead. Here. I just had a quick question there. It just kind of made me think. Hi, Victoria. Um, Hello. So when we have it, as you say, some, some things might trigger a memory for someone that's traumatic. So how do we get a trigger warning that doesn't trigger the person in the first place? So in other words, if you use, I don't know, a trigger warning such as sexual violence that might in itself be a trigger for someone who's been traumatised in that situation. Is that true? Um, Absolutely. It it could be. It's sort of one of those, yeah, I've heard people say you need a trigger warning for a trigger warning because it can make you think about it as well. And so that's one of the whole sort of illogical sort of things in these claims about how trigger warnings work, which I've thought about many times. Um, Because, yeah, if if you're bringing someone's trauma up, which... Another thing is, like, if you didn't have that trigger warning there, they may have not even connected their own experience to that media, but now you've actually connected it there. So, yeah, you absolutely, I think absolutely someone could, if they're in a particularly vulnerable um, mental health state, they could definitely be triggered by the trigger warning because they're, they're, they're then bringing it up. Um, and we do know, like, from my own research and the research of some of my colleagues, that um, just seeing a trigger warning does make people feel anxious. So it, like, it provokes just, like, anxiety state and has, like, um, so physiological markers like heart rate and galvanic skin response things um, go up. So it does make people nervous. Um, and I think it definitely um, does make people think about their traumatic experiences. Um, when one study, for instance, um, they found that just exposing people to trigger warnings versus not exposing them to trigger warnings but, and then exposing them to the same distressing media um, actually made people um, feel like their trauma was more central to their identity, which is like a really maladaptive sort of... Um, yeah. Response. So, yeah, definitely, I think people could be triggered just from the trigger warning. So this returns to, you were just about to talk about some of the uh, claims that your research is making, and, uh, and I guess where you've just taken us in, in those comments is to whether trigger warnings act as a therapeutic device or are they a protective device? Yeah, so there's, once you delve into trigger warnings, you realise there's a lot of claims made about them. There's all kinds of cultural claims, educational claims, like that it helps people learn better. Um, and then, of course, like um, my thesis sort of focused on these sort of core central claims about when you see one, what do you do and how does it make you feel and is there a benefit there? So the sort of two main pathways is when you see one, you could either stay and view the content, in which case the trigger warning um, claims about trigger warning say that um, it should help reduce, say, the shock of seeing something scary. It should reduce a trigger-ridden response and it should also make you, I guess, feel a bit better about that material because you're emotionally prepared. So that's that set of claims. And then the second set of claims surrounds, okay, if I see one, maybe I'll avoid the material completely. And so I've sort of looked into both of these pathways. Um, and as for the first the first claim, um, yeah, there's not a lot of evidence, if at any, that they help reduce emotional reactions towards material at this stage. Um, so we find, actually, that they don't do a lot. So if, if they were doing, if they were helping, 
the claims were true, we should find a very distinct pattern between warning people versus unwarning them and finding that they have some redu reduction of um, a distress response to something they see afterwards. But we just don't find that. And, in fact, in the studies um, so far, we find that actually they make people feel anxious and they can actually, yeah, increase some maladaptive kind of responses. <laughs> We're all looking at each other because I think everyone's got so many questions. <laughs> I, I, want, I, want to, I just want to ask about, in terms of the research itself, uh, what have you actually been doing? Have you been reading other people's research or have you been actually with people doing the research uh, live in the laboratory or wherever you do your research? Oh, yeah. So um, I just recently completed my PhD at Flinders University and my whole thesis on trigger warnings. So I did a series of, say, five overall uh, lines of research with like many like experiments within that um so yeah i've done like i've published um i think i've got uh, i've got five publications now on trigger warnings um some of them are just emerging actually um yeah so i've been on on the ground as it were with trigger warnings i'm also working with um the harvard lab richard mcnally's lab um with them who they're, they're another team they were like the first team to publish on trigger warnings as well um so yeah i'm very close to it <laughs> that my research baby yeah <laughs> Yeah, Victoria. So yeah, talking about the research, one of the challenges of your research is um, comes from that ethics angle and recruitment of subjects, right? So by its, yeah. by definition, you're dealing with uh, subjects that you're most interested in who have experienced trauma. Engaging trauma, um, uh, pe pe people who have experienced trauma in research is problematic for a variety of reasons. Can you talk to us about how you've um, worked with that challenge? Yeah, so one of the ironic things about trigger warning research is that most of the time you have to warn people in the consent form that you're going to show them traumatic <laughs> Triggers on material. triggers on triggers on triggers. Yeah, exactly. So at that point, um, you're kind of invalidating a really clean no warning condition because you're already setting up participants with potential negative expectations as they come into the room. Um, and so we've had to be quite creative with some of our experimental designs um, along the way so that we could just have clean no warning conditions. Um, and as for... Um, uh, the recruitment of, say, clinical populations. Typically what we will do is we won't specifically recruit a clinical population. We'll just screen for it as we, like, just have, um, as we recruit participants. So we'll just see, okay, where is, it, where is this person at? But we won't, like, specifically go and seek a trauma population. But in saying that, um, actually quite a large percentage of the population, say, like, uh, 70 to 90 percent even within like university samples have experienced what's called a criterion age trauma so like actual or threatened death it's quite common actually um as to the ptsd rates it's lower than that obviously not everyone experiences a traumatic event goes on tablet but usually i'd say like 20 percent to 30 percent of a sample that we get might be what we call potentially ptsd probable according to our um clinical measures um so, so we sorry, do still um, get um, a slice of that I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. Victoria, but I really want to go back to those figures because they are slightly astounding. It, just one more time for me. You said 30% of people have either experienced or been close to a, a near-death experience, did you say? No, actually, it's much, much higher. So, like, 70 to 90% of people have experienced what we call a criterion A, which is actual or threatened sudden death. So that could be, like, sudden death of a family member um, or, like, a car crash or transport accident. They're the most common kind of ones. Um, but, yeah, it's actually really, really common for most, most people to have had something like this happen to them. And this is just the, this is the regular population? This is not this, this sort of weird, weird population who go to psychologists because they want to get research? This is people housing no, in the community? No, this, this is just normal. This is when you look, you cut across a lot of studies. Um, it's well-founded in the literature that 
that exposure rate is quite high. Um, as for PTSD rates, that's a lot lower. So not, not everyone goes on to experience PTSD. As I sort of said, it's like someone could experience traumatic events, but it's how that sort of memory then goes on to either develop, uh, lead to PTSD or not. And so that PTSD is a lot lower um, in, in the general population. And so maybe it's like all people that have experienced a traumatic event, maybe around 10%, but the estimates kind of vary very widely. Also, depending on the traumatic event as well, it can change, but yeah. And I'll just be interested as well, Victoria. I think, you know, I absolutely agree with you about memory and trauma. Um, but also that sort of, I suppose that, you know, triggers can be highly varied. So the sort of concept really of trigger warnings. I mean, some people can be triggered by a sound, a particular type of sound. Sometimes they may not even really fully appreciate what it is that triggers their memory around their trauma. Um, so just how effective can... Uh, you know, like looking at trigger warnings seem to be very much about what words and phrases and, and things like that that might evoke a memory rather than a, a number of other types of trigger. Is that yeah, right? yeah, that's exactly, it's spot on. So um, when you look at um, what triggers people, there isn't actually a lot of research on this. It's actually something I'm maybe looking into next because um, it's sort of a clinical term. It's not as been in the research dome. There's often clinical stuff that doesn't get a hell of a lot of research devoted to it. But of the papers that there are on it, um, you'll find that um, when, you when you look at the phenomenological sort of characteristics of what a triggering thing is like, it can be really, really random stuff. So it's usually what's called like the, the hot the hot spot of the, the trauma memory, and that typically happens actually just before the traumatic event happens. So it's not often like when the traumatic event is unfolding. It's like something that happened just before it happened. So, for instance, someone who had a car crash, their trigger was turning to the left really suddenly. When they would turn their body to the left, they might get a traumatic memory flash-up because that's what they did just before their car collided with someone else's. Another guy's was car headlights, so a truck flashed in his face just before he crashed his car. Another um, lady had experienced a sexual assault. Her trigger was if someone stood next to her while she was lying on a bed, she would get triggered because that's what she saw just before the event happened. So it's often really idiosyncratic, strange things. I've seen someone talk about Converse sneakers was their trigger, like things that aren't even really negative or distressing in and of themselves. Oh, so, yeah, right. it's really hard to warn about. Yeah, yes, right. exactly, yeah, okay. yeah. So, Victoria, if we're talking about um, the majority of people have had some nasty connection with near-death experience and then a significant percentage of the population have some sort of PTSD, it becomes blindingly obvious that we must have trigger warnings to protect us because we're all vulnerable and need protecting. Do they do any good? Um. So I'll just, just clarify that not most people don't go, to get, go on to get PTSD. They just, most people just experience a traumatic event. So just, yeah. just as a caveat. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, no, at the moment we can't really find any, any evidence that they're doing any of the things. Um, so what, in terms of, so I've talked about the emotion claims. Um, they just sort of make people feel a little bit anxious. They don't seem to help. I think the problem with the emotion claims is um, they're supposed to, I guess, help you to engage in like a coping strategy or something. But they, we know that when you just ask people to do that, they don't know what that means or how to do that. But if I just said to you, okay, I want you to like emotionally prepare yourself for this really horrible thing. Are you, are you bringing to mind all these really helpful ways of doing like, likely not like, and I've actually asked this question in research, and we find people don't know what to do in that situation. Um, and as for the avoidance claims, um, 
we haven't found anything there yet either. They don't seem to enhance avoidance. It seems more likely that maybe if you were going to avoid mm. something negative, you'd just avoid something with a trigger warning anyway. So it doesn't seem to be increasing it. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, there's there's some areas of warning research um, in some public health related um, areas showing that warnings can actually make people more likely to engage with something than less because it makes it forbidden. It's called the forbidden fruit effect. Um, so, so in that instance, we know like putting... Um, Warning messages on violent video games makes kids under that age limit want to watch those video, play those games more. And warnings on fatty foods make people want to eat them more. And like all this kind of <laughs> yeah, what's really <laughs> the forbidden fruit. Hey, um, Victoria, yeah. that sounds like it uh, links to a bit of work that uh, a fairly well-known psychologist at Yale, uh, Paul Bloom, did a couple of years ago with his book, um, a Pleasure and How It Works. And although, as the name says, the book was focusing on pleasure, he in passing talked about the same can be said about pain in regard to expectations so if you anticipate or if you expect something to bring you pleasure because you've experienced it before uh, you know in this case the inverse is trauma then your expectation that you're going to have the same experience again if you're uh, in that same scenario is there can you make a link for us between what you were saying a moment ago and this idea of um, so much of what is a consequent of a re-exposure is about expectations yeah, so expectations sort of links back to, I guess, uh, placebo roots sort of thing or response expectancy. So the idea that um, our minds are actually quite powerful over our bodies and so what you expect is a lot about what you experience. And so, yeah, if you go, if you expect positive things to happen to you, like you take, a, take medication to reduce pain, it, that can happen. And we know that through hundreds of placebo, thousands of placebo studies. But, of course, the opposite is true with negative stuff as well. So if you take something and you read that it's got uh, X amount of side effects, you might experience those side effects, even though, um, you know, you might, it's not actually the drug causing it. So it's a placebo. So people can get side effects from placebo, which is really bizarre. Um, there's this really, my favourite case is um, this paper from 2007 where this, um, this guy appeared at the emergency room and said that he'd taken an overdose of drugs. And um, he was presenting all these signs as if he was having a real overdose and his like heart rate was soaring, he was in hypertension, and they thought he was, was going to die. Um, they ended up getting hold of his GP and they found out that he was actually part of the placebo arm of the drug trial, so he had taken <laughs> no real drugs at all. Um, and after they told him that, he all his symptoms vanished and he was fine. So we're, it, we've got very powerful yeah, mind-body connection with that. And I guess when you link that to trigger warnings... Um, yeah, you could definitely, I guess, some situations, I think, um, manifest, obviously, negative expectancies about what you're going to see and then start looking for that in that media um, and make it more negative than it actually is. Really quickly, Victoria, because I know yep. we're running short of time um, here, but yep. it just occurred to me as we were talking about expectations, there's one cohort of the um, vax hesitancy um, population <laughs> that they, they they understand the science of vaccination and what it's trying to achieve, but they're literally phobic about the needle, right? And there's a you know, yep. and that may be because they've had a traumatic experience with receiving a needle, or just their expectations are that the needle is going to hurt. You know, we can do that with any phobia, flying spiders, whatever. Um, is 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 there a link there or not? Oh, absolutely. A lot of the, um, I think I've seen one small, of course, this is all very new, all of our vaccine stuff. I've seen one small study showing that um, it seems to be that a lot of the um, reactions we're having to vac- the uh, COVID vaccines are in fact nocebo. And when you mm. compare it to a placebo, they're actually quite similar rates of, say, headache and those kind of effects. Um, but yeah, I'd say um, what I'd love to see, because when I went and got mine, um, I'd love to see them give you a sheet that's like, okay, here's the side effect, but also know that nocebo effects are a thing and you can actually 
reduce these effects. Right. Like we know that if you tell people about nocebo effects, you can reduce the rate of having them. But it's not. It's a very under-researched part of the informed consent stuff. And one of my friends is actually starting a PhD on this. But yeah, I'd love to be able to reduce nocebo effects because <laughs> they can cause really nasty things. Do you know how yeah. we we manage that by giving people such an enormous list of possible side effects that they never read any of it? It's a bit like yeah, <laughs> it's a bit true, like do you yeah. accept the terms and conditions of the nine pages? You just say, oh yes, all right. And, uh, Victoria, yeah, yeah. that's been absolutely. I just want one very quick uh, yes or no answer to this one. Your research has proven they're a waste of time. Should they now be banned and got rid of? Um, I think not Just say banned. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, I hate Sean. I hate. I like a nuanced answer. I can't no. do it. I can't do it. Yes, no. <laughs> Uh, uh, all right well we'll we'll leave that as a rhetorical question victoria thank you so much for your time that's been absolutely fascinating we'll have to get you in the studio and do this really properly face to face but thank you and we'll send you back to your cup of coffee in lovely south australia Thanks so much for having me on. I've had a great time. Thanks, Victoria. That was Victoria Bridgeland. Uh, just wonderful stuff. Oh, God, I do love a bit of iconoclast. <laughs> that was superb. Um, now, it's 10.30. Oh, my goodness, it's 10.37. Time is <laughs> Coming up, it, uh, Netflix devotees, um, anyone who's watched the wonderful series about sex education um, and wondered what we should be doing to help our adolescents learn about that tricky transition from innocent kid into emerging sexuality. Well, stick around because we'll be talking to someone who really knows. Giselle Woodley will be coming up shortly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On the phone now, all the way from WA, we have Giselle Woodley. Hi, Giselle. Hello, how are you? Oh, thank you so much for getting up even earlier to talk to us. I'm going to pass you straight over to Prudence, dear, and um, she's going to say hi to you. Hi, Giselle. This is Prudence. And uh, yeah, it sounds, makes me sound like the Inquisitor or something, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us this morning because we're really interested. I mean, we're great fans of Sex Education, the TV programme. So um, I guess just as, as a way of understanding where you're coming from, how did you get involved in a, a set of research projects um, that allow you as a PhD candidate to watch TV? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, our research project that is uh, funded by the Australian Research Council at Edith Cowan University in Western Australia is actually based around pornography and the effects it has on teenagers. All right. My... Um, my colleague and supervisor was really interested in sexual education and my PhD focuses on uh, sexual education. So it look, the thesis is called Born Into Porn. So it looks at the intersection of uh, teenagers learning and born into an era where pornography serves as their primary source of sexual information, mm-hmm. either by watching it or second-hand information or the effects that it creates, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was really lucky to come on board and um, join this project as a PhD student and into lots of different areas. Yeah, I mean, it's, it covers quite a, a range of things. So I suppose one of the things was uh, just sort of looking at um, one of your papers, so which was entitled, or titled, um, uh, you know, own your, your own your narrative, own your narrative. So what's the what's the significance of that for teenagers and their sort of understanding of sexuality? Uh, so that was actually my colleague, um, Associate Professor Deborah Dudek's uh, title, but it's a line from the TV series as well, but basically it's, it's looking into how 
uh, teenagers can speak for themselves, essentially, and they can pass, pave and lead the way, essentially. So in the TV series Sex Education, obviously the sex education that's delivered is um, leaving a lack of information and misinformation is being spread around the school in terms of, you know, wearing a face mask, the chlamydia is one example. Um, That happened in the first season before COVID, mind you. (laughs) And um, Otis and May take it upon themselves to then run a sex therapy clinic, essentially, in the the toilet uh, block at school and uh, rectify this information and children seek them out and they correct this information and it's a really affirming uh, narrative, I suppose, where teenagers and young people can take on and own their own story, essentially. So uh, really own themselves, really know themselves and Mm. embrace and celebrate both their identity and their sexuality. Absolutely. And I I think that's a wonderful image as well, of course, you know, that that this sort of locally run sex education sort of scheme was in was in the toilet block which is sort of where so many strange things happen in schools i suspect <laughs> what what i mean what do what are kids being taught these days in schools what is what is sex education and perhaps what are the deficits there where do you think it could be really improved well, well the australian uh, the curriculum in australia was actually just recently reviewed um, nationwide so that's undergoing review um, I'm actually part of a sex education advocate group, so we put in a submission and encourage other people to do so. But yeah. um, the main problem is, although the new curriculum has some wonderful aspects to it, so I think a lot of people think that sex education is, you know, talking about what the body parts and reproduction, etc. But sex education actually covers a whole realm of um, attributes, essentially I would call life skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things such as uh, empathy training and building respect, maintaining... Uh, healthy relationships, and that means asserting and maintaining boundaries, uh, communication yeah. skills, conflict resolution, uh, managing your emotions, and um, you know there's a whole plethora of skills that we're all lacking and that we, we really would have done yeah. uh, well to have. Um, I suppose in, the problem is with schools, although the curriculum means well, there's no, um, it's not mandated and there's no consistency. Mm. So although one school may be... Um, really progressive in uh, teaching all these components. There's uh, no mandated training. And I, in my opinion, it's something very important that you can't, that, that is um, terrible to get wrong, I suppose. And um, there's no uh, consistency between schools. So there's no training and no consistency, and that's the main concern, I would say. Yeah, so in terms of the people that are actually delivering this sort of information and, and so on. Yeah. Just a quick question on the delivery of it, um, uh, Giselle. Um, what are you coming across in terms of the profile of the of the teacher or whoever it is that is doing it? Is it in my case, it was the science teacher. In schools at the moment, is it the science teacher? Is it maybe the social science teacher? Uh, who is it in the schools that is it a counsellor? Um, who's doing it at the moment, and is it maybe even a combination? Yeah, so it's, I'd say it's a combination. Predominantly these days it's sitting under health, so it sits under a health class. Um, but I think it's often left to a physical education teacher who hasn't had, um, who often hasn't had training themselves, I suppose. Um, in, in sexology we believe that a whole school approach should be taken where um, little parts are essentially embedded in different classes. So, you know, in drama you explore sexuality. In English you explore a text that has um, some sexual identity or gender undercurrent. So it shouldn't just be limited to the one class. It should come across, you know, in history you examine different cultures and their sexuality. There's so much to explore. 
Um, and it shouldn't be a stigmatised, you know, one-off conversation or it should be an ongoing discussion that's embedded in a whole range of um, aspects. Sorry, oh, oh, yes. Um, so, um, I mean, you, at the beginning there, you mentioned pornography, and I guess that tends to be a fairly sort of kind of pejorative, pejorative term. I mean, can, do do adolescents learn things from pornography, and is it are they able to learn, I guess, healthy things? Um, it's definitely um, not such a one-sided argument, I suppose. So, there are obviously very well-known negative aspects of pornography. Uh, such as, you know, mimicking the apps that are um, contained within, which mm-hmm. if um, mainstream pornography is being consumed, it's mostly of an aggressive undertone. Uh, there's mm-hmm. also, you know, the lack of uh, prophylactic, so condom use, and uh, practices such as uh, degrading women. So that can be really, really concerning, especially because it's a case, can be a case of for young developing minds that it's uh, monkey see, monkey do, so they emulate what they see, even if they're not aware of it. Um, but there are, of course, positives to it as well. So if you're not receiving sexual information from your parents, and although um, we know that parents can be one of the most important sources of sexual information, if they didn't receive themselves, how are they to, you know, communicate those messages, I suppose? And um, so pornography, if your school isn't conducting great sex ed, you're not getting it from your parents, um, then pornography can be a useful source of sexual information, and it can be really affirming as well for certain uh, gender identities, etc., yeah. where it be more of an accepting form um, and a source of sexual information that schools sometimes don't and sometimes cannot fill as well. Yeah, look, and I can see that it's, it's, it's really, you know, advantageous if young people can actually see kind of kind of good role models, I guess. But where perhaps, as you mentioned, you know, like gender identity, um, uh, more diverse sort of sexuality, being if, if, if our kids are learning that from pornography, I kind of sense that there might be quite a strong feeling amongst community and parents about how healthy that is. Do you think I mean, that's a fair comment? And what do we do about what do we do about the parents and the community? <laughs> How do we bring them along to understand that these kids need to know more? Oh, you make them watch the TV show Sex Education, <laughs> 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 which is a source of sexual information for young people and adults alike, because it, it's really affirming and accepting, and um, it takes a really sex-positive approach. And um, there are some really amazing workshops and organisations doing amazing things um, where parents can go along and, along and learn. Um, but I personally think, you know, my uh, personal goal is to help implement mandated, um, trained sex education in schools. But I'm also really interested in teaching it in communities to those of us that didn't receive the sex education that we should. And I think humour and media and entertainment and shows like sex education and the crude, um, vulgar humour of um, Big Mouth as well, familiar with that, are great ways to teach um, <laughs> And, and she's a, 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 it, it seems to me a little bit unfair to, to say that the Netflix series Sex Education is a very good way of helping teenagers learn if we compare the amount of time, because that, that was three series over God knows how many hours. I mean, if teachers had tw- 20 hours to do a proper sex education program, they might do it very well. Um, I suspect that one of the reasons the Netflix series is so effective is just there's an awful lot of it. Yeah, that's true. So you've got copious amounts of material. And really, we wrote our article uh, back in July uh, to, the, to the journal, and I suppose in every episode, there's so many components you could break down and explore and 
um, it'd be a great driver to watch with your children or mm. uh, watch separately and then discuss and use it as the impetus for further discussion. Yes, and, and I want to ask about a particular aspect, and I'm going to give a trigger warning here for anyone who's uncomfortable with the concept of, and I'm going to say the word, so turn off if you don't want to hear the word which I'm warning you about now, and that word is masturbation. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because one of the things I'm aware of for, uh, when talking about this with younger people and certainly my experience growing up is my early uh, sex experience was not with someone else and uh, for nearly every teenager of course their early experiences are solo um, and one of the issues I have with a show like Sex Education is, that, I mean, pretty much every episode seems to start with a sort of mass bonkathon. And there's this sort of sense that everyone from the age of 15 onwards is having sex furiously with lots of different partners. And if you haven't got through at least a dozen by the time you finish school, there's something wrong with you. Uh, that's how it comes across to me. Do you have a comment about that? So I suppose it's quite shocking to hear that uh, children are having and um, we are interviewing teenagers at the moment who are um, essentially affirming this. So I think one of the arguments for sex education or, or again sex education is that if we teach our kids about these components, they're going to be having sex younger and it's going to be encouraging that behaviour. But ultimately, um, going to be doing it anyway or they would be better if they were informed beforehand about different aspects and main Happy boundaries and expecting. And, um, and, and sorry, it is, it is breaking up a little bit, but I, I think we heard pretty much what you were saying there. Thank you very much. Uh, um, um, sorry, prudence, dear. <laughs> uh, yes, no, great, great, thanks. And, and I suppose, yeah, look, I mean, you've summarised in, in the sense that, you know, the, it's a whole range of things. It's not just specific like the biology or, for example, you know, even about consent, but much more about all those things, including healthy relationships, boundary setting and so on. One. How are we doing for time here? <laughs> um, but anyway, it's been yeah, in... far away. So, yeah, it's go on. Oh, I was just going to say, in regards to the masturbation talk as well, another mm. aspect that, that is important to talk about is I think that is how our children and young first initially explore sexuality, and even as toddlers, um, sometimes they're aware of their sexual energy and to touch, and I think an instant reaction to tell them off or mm. um, get angry at that. But really we should be teaching them actually that is a healthy exploration. Maybe just teach and say, that's okay, but that you do that in private and so not in a public sphere mm. instance. And I think that's a really good point. And I am sorry, Giselle, but the line's getting a little bit flaky. But, uh, but uh, um, what you were up. saying there, which uh, just to reiterate, if people didn't quite catch it, is that, um, yes, well before puberty, uh, children will often explore their genitals and there is a tendency for parents to go, oh, don't touch that and what are you doing and that sort of thing. Um, and what you just said, Giselle, I thought was beautifully put. Uh, it's not about saying something pejorative or negative about it, but just letting people know that maybe that's something not to be done out in the family room when the guests are coming for dinner <laughs> to be done in the in the privacy of their own home um, yeah, so hopefully as we as we change the you know as we better educate our adolescents we will have parents who are also much better educated and you know we can sort of you know bring about quite a bit of a, a culture shift i hope in, in in the way that we approach sex yeah that was that was really interesting thank you so much for and, no, and Giselle, uh, just in case there's a wrap-up that you want to say, we'll try the line for the last moment. Is there anything, last bits, that you want to get out to our audience? 
Uh, I suppose um, if you do know any families who'd like to talk about pornography, you can email us at perceptions at um, But apart from that, what makes a suggestion? Watch Big Mouth. Take any education you can, even if it's through media, and um, be sick. Take a positive approach with your kids. That's, thank you, Giselle, and again, apologies for the quality of the line because it got a little bit broken towards the end, but uh, that was Giselle Woodley from the Edith Cowan University, um, and uh, look her up, um, and if you want to be part of the research, get in touch. Uh, if you want to know more, read her papers. Fabulous stuff. Thank you very much. Thanks, Giselle. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Oh, it's nearly time to wrap up here on Radiotherapy. Just time to say a huge thank you to our wonderful guests, Victoria Bridgeland and Giselle Woodley, and to the multi-talented Dr Nick Team, Prudence Dear, and Panel Beater. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast so you can listen to us again. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.